many Christians think as long as they vote against people who support abortion that they've fulfilled their duty before God in terms of voting. But is that all the Bible says about voting? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. 2 Timothy 3.17 says that the Word of God is sufficient to equip a man of God for every good work. And so when we think about voting, we should first say, is it a good work? Because if it's not, we just shouldn't do it. But if it is, then we should be looking towards Scripture to figure out how to do it. So how should we look at the Bible, and how should we apply Scripture to voting? I mean, it's something that, you know, comes up every four years, every two years. It's coming up now, and, you know, the, there's, a, there's a big question of how should Christians be involved in, in politics. You know, there's, uh, there, there's some sects out there that say, you know, Christians are supposed to be completely separate from the world, including separate from elections. I think if you look at Scripture— you see a lot of, uh, you know, involvement, especially in Israel, um, in uh, in with civil magistrates that are Christians. Now, of course, we're not we're not Israel as a nation state anymore. But yet, there are there is instructions in when you look at Scripture that inform how you ought to to uh, live as a godly citizen. I mean, there are people who, like the Amish or a lot of the Anabaptists, believe that you shouldn't vote. And the reason that they're doing that is because they're saying they don't want to merge with the world. They don't want to become part of the world. They're not part of the kingdom of earth. They're part of the kingdom of heaven. So therefore, it doesn't have an impact on them. And so that's why they don't have social security cards, other things along that those lines. But, you know, I think that, that the more biblical position is that we're actually supposed to participate and not be shining light by refusing to participate, but by shining light by being in the world, even though we're not of the world. And, and kind of what I was, was getting at there was part of it is we're going to talk about the way you should think about voting. But as you think about it, in the end, the Christian position should be one of absolute principle. It should be one. I mean, to be light and to be salt requires you to have conviction. It requires you to have principle. It's not, it's not this wishy-washy thing that's tossed to and fro. And so there's this part of it where if you come to the con- – I mean, I think it's wrong to come to the conclusion that you shouldn't vote. But if you shouldn't – you should have that principle and you should proclaim that and you should, you know what I mean? And there's this part of it where you still have to be light in the world and that needs to be your light. And I think there's this part of it where people just think of their voting as that's their action. And that's really just a tiny, tiny part of what it means to be a Christian and have the, you know what I mean? To have that view. Even to have the impact on the civil magistrate, it shouldn't just be through our vote. Right. But I would argue that it should be part of it is through the vote. And one of the reasons that I would argue that part of it is through the vote is because yeah, when we think of that God has appointed all civil magistrates, we should be looking at the voting as a civil magistrate function. And as since in our culture, basically, that civil magistrate, magistrate to some extent has been extended throughout all the adult population. And so when we look at that, we should be saying, well, if I was a civil magistrate and said, well, I'm just going to go, I don't care if people murder because, hey, I just don't want to be involved. That would be failure to fulfill your duty and your responsibility. And I do think that with the structure of our government, and it's very particular in the structure of the government, but because those are our laws, that has a real impact on us. And because it has a real impact, we have a duty to fulfill that responsibility to our neighbor. And, you know, the Bible talks about the blessings that come for when you get good people in office, like Proverbs 29, verse 2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And in our country, you know, there's elections where, you know, it's coming down 
to, you know, the two names are on the ballot. There's the righteous and the wicked. And to have an impact on making that verse come true involves going to vote. Now, there's many ballots that are not like that, that's but what there I was are going. ballots out there. You mean the Democrat there. and the Republican, no, right? No, now. There, are, there are ballots out there where that's the choice. You know, another application of this verse that I would clearly put is this isn't saying that therefore you should vote for unrighteous people. You shouldn't vote for people that are doing wicked because that is not loving your neighbor. Whether they're a wicked man that's just covetous or whether they're a wicked man who, you know, plots murder of people. Regardless, we don't have the right to vote for people who are wicked because when we vote for people who are wicked, we're voting for our neighbors to groan, and that is unloving. So when you say that, that you don't have the option of voting for a wicked person, what if you have, I mean, any ballot inherently, you have limited options, and what if any of the options you have are not palatable? I mean, we've done it. We did a podcast back at the last presidential election saying, how did we get these two men? neither of whom are qualified biblically for this office. How did we get or to that nobody, point? Or even most people wouldn't consider either of them qualified I mean, at all. You know, when you say that you can't vote for a wicked person, well, what if my only options are wicked people? Can I pick the less wicked one and vote for them? And let, let, for, let's make it easier for a minute because, like, for president, you know, most states you have the two main candidates and then you have three or four other candidates, possibly a write-in spot. So there, your option, you, pro you may have a good person on the ballot or you have a blank spot where you write a righteous person in. And so there you come down to the fact of, am I going, there it comes down to pure pragmatism of, am I going to not vote for someone who is righteous and instead vote for someone who I think will win and might be better than the other person? Because, I mean, most states allow some kind of write-in. And I would even argue otherwise, my personal view is you can't vote for somebody wicked, that it's wrong. I, I think that the lesser of two evil arguments is, is a terrible idea, right? I mean, it's just this argument that has an emotional appeal but doesn't have much scriptural basis to it. The reality is God is sovereign over who's going to be elected. So the issue is not who's going to be elected. The issue is are we obeying God or not? Because in the end, God, God chose who will be king. That's what it says. He raises up kings. He brings them down, you know, and I think even in Deuteronomy 17, 14, and 15, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren, you shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. In the end, the one that you will set over you is the one the Lord chooses. But at the same time, he then goes and says, but here's criteria on how to choose them. And so when we think about choosing any elected official, we should be saying that, yes, God is going to choose who is elected, which doesn't mean that our responsibility is eliminated, just like Israel's responsibility wasn't eliminated. What that means is we need to be careful to obey God when we do it. You know, there are people who will say, hey, if, if you don't vote for one of these two, you're just throwing your vote away or you're doing these sort of things. I mean, there was a movie made years ago called Sophie's Choice where there's a woman, right, I think it's in a, in a, in a Nazi concentration camp where a guard comes over to her and tells her to choose which one of her two children she wants him to kill. And I remember, like, hearing people talk about it, and people talk about how heartbreaking it is. And the movie's, like, set 
long later in her life where she's thinking back on what happened and now she has this one child, whichever child she didn't choose that, that is alive and she's remembering what she had done. And I remember like my wife telling me about the movie and it's really funny because I talk to a lot of men and a lot of men have the same exact response as they go, you attack the guard. You know, it's like you, you reject the choice. You go, I will not be a part of your evil. You're asking me to choose between two things that are evil. I reject your choice. And part of the problem is, is in our pragmatism, one of the reasons why it works is because we don't, first, sometimes we don't believe both choices are actually evil. We actually, or you know, we don't think both choices are that evil. That's what I mean. We, we don't, we, we, one, of the, one of the men has idolatry that resonates with us. His idolatries, they f- are familiar to us, or they've created a world in which we're more comfortable living, or we think those evils are better evils than the other evils. And that's, there's really a danger there. I mean, because in the end, the woman made a choice in this movie, and there's this part of it where, I mean, and, and you could go to a lot of situations. If somebody said, you either have to murder this person or sleep with someone who's not your wife, which one would you do? And you, you, you should go, I reject your evil. I, I will not be a part of your evil. I'm not going to, if you have to kill me or whatever the consequences are, I accept the consequences of this. And I'll call on God and ask God to to save me. And I think there's this part of it where we see it in so many other circumstances, but in these cases, we somehow think we can trick ourselves into believing this is okay. It's okay to compromise here. And, you know, and it might depend on the country. You know, there's some countries where you have to vote. That's not the United States. A lot of people don't vote. You don't have to vote. And in fact, not voting is a vote in and of itself. Because, you know, if the Republican Party realizes we nominate someone who is, you know, obviously wicked and suddenly none of the evangelicals show up to the polls, that message will get across. And it will get across very quickly if they realize that we can't nominate wicked people and have the, you know, all the evangelicals say, well, lesser of two evils, let's go for it. So, you know, the fact that people, that the church has adopted this philosophy means that they get evil candidates to vote for. And what even stands out more is if, like, other positions are voted for and the president is not voted for. If a bunch of evangelicals said, yeah, I'm going to vote for governor and senator because there's acceptable candidates, but I'm not going to vote for the president, they count that stuff. They look at that stuff. They know that stuff. And they go, so why is there this huge discrepancy? So even if it's if it's if you don't vote at all for anything, right, if you don't even show up, then all of a sudden what they basically do is go, you're lazy, if you show up and don't vote for anybody or don't vote for certain offices, all of a sudden they're going, so why do we lose it here and not here? And those are people that they see as much easier to get, and you have much more influence to get them if, if you're just skipping the ones that you say, I can't vote for anybody in this race. And hey, if you really want to be pragmatic, if you really want to make the pragmatic argument, I would say the reason why we are now is because of these decisions that we've been making. I mean, I remember growing up, I was born in 1975. I, my first real major elections that I remember were kind of related to Ronald Reagan. And I remember some of the elections going on at the time. I remember, you know, uh, Mondale and Geraldine Ferraro running and my parents being like at shock that, you know, they were running a, a female vice president, ca- you know, candidate, that there were these, you know, then there were uh, other candidates that I remember them talking about going, we cannot vote for this person. You know, and, and usually these were in primaries, you know, primaries is where, you can have principles in primaries, <laughs> you know. What I mean, I mean, but you would hear people talk about primaries. You know, that's just that's just a bridge too far. That's something that's beyond what we're willing to accept. We cannot vote for them. And you look back. I mean, people forget you had Romney, who was a Mormon. You had McCain, who was 
a Democrat wearing a Republican clothing. You know what I mean? And and people go, how did we get here? And they go, we've got to get back to that. But if you look at the strategy that got us here, if you want to be pragmatic, you need to analyze, have you had any success with what you're really doing? And in the end, you've really gone down a hole. I mean, this is not, this is not, it's not a winning strategy, if, even if you want to be pragmatic. You know, and if you think about it too, you know, your vote's not deciding an election. It's a presidential election. You're, you're not picking the president. You know, even God's picking the president, but even, you know, so God's picking the president. We're not picking the president. Um, and as individuals, we're not picking the president either. And, you know, do you, what do you want? Who do you want to be putting and saying this is the person that I am endorsing and supporting for this office? So, you know, I mean, this is the classic example you're never supposed to go back to. But, you know, you look at 1930s Germany, ni- 1920s Germany. Um, and, you know, the candidates... There are people at home going, 1930s Germany? Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, but, you know you, you, the people from that era, you know, f- 40 years later, were they happy to tell their children that they had voted for Hitler because he was the lesser of two evils? Were they happy to say that? Because that's why they were voting for him. Because they said, yeah, you know, we don't like some things that Hitler says, but, you know, that otherwise Stalin's going to invade us and we're going to all become communists. So that's what they were doing. They were saying we'd rather have Hitler than Stalin. And how happy were those people telling their grandchildren about that choice? I I don't think that's a I don't think that they were too happy about that. Right. No, that's a really good point. And I mean. I think it also, when we just say take the lesser of two evils, we forget what the church is supposed to do, because God has said what the church is supposed to do. In Daniel 2, he makes it clear. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. One of the things when you accept the lesser of two evils argument is what you're saying is we must maintain the current kingdoms. God says that the purpose of the church is to destroy those kingdoms. So why do we have to turn around and say, but we must vote for them to be continued? Right. And there's this part of where what I was kind of trying to say at the beginning is, and what Joshua was kind of saying about, if you think about the impact that your vote has, your vote is such a tiny thing compared to you believing things and being that person. You have a much greater chance of impacting people around you. The people, I mean, not even talking about elected officials in your state, I'm talking about people at your work, people in your family, people in your church. You have a much greater chance of impacting them than you do the presidential election. And so there's this part of where people, I think they completely forget what their real responsibility is. They're like, I have to vote for this person. And then they want to go, well, here's, I'll be principled. I'll be completely principled, but I'll still vote for the evil. You know, so, and, and that doesn't work because in the end, if you're willing to compromise, you're telling everyone. I mean, it's the old adage of the guy who asked the woman if you'll, she'll sleep with him for a dollar. You know. The way it usually goes is a man walks up to a woman and says, will you sleep with me for a million dollars? And she says, sure. And then the man says, how about $10? And then she goes, what kind of girl do you think I am? And the man responds, we've already determined that. Now we're just negotiating price. Okay. Well, that's, <laughs> that's the classic rendering. Okay. Well, I, I, don't hang around, I, I don't hang around people that tell those kind of jokes. So I, would. I think it was Churchill who It reminded me of a time that I was preaching in Columbia, and we were doing a conference at a Reformed Baptist church in Columbia, and there was an election that day. So people leaving the conference were all going to go vote, and they're like almost fighting with each other in the congregation. Yeah, there were probably 100 people there or something, and like 50 of them supported one candidate and 50 of them supported the other candidate. 
and somebody asked me this question and by the end of just talking to them about it and walking through the scriptures they all decide they shouldn't vote for either because they both agreed that they're wicked men both of them both the candidates that was why they were having such a struggle is both of them went they're both terrible so which ter- which le- which evil is lesser is what the big debate was but them thinking about it differently those 100 people thinking about it differently they'll have far more impact on Colombia than whether 50 voted for one guy and 50 or even if 100 voted for one and 100 voted for the other, they'll have more impact because they've actually thought it through and can now make the debate or make the argument would be a better way to say that. And if you want to reject this and if you want to vote for the lesser of two evils, at least don't forget that they're evil because a lot of people vote for the lesser of two evils and then they become the evil man's biggest supporter and they post quotes on their Facebook page from the evil man and they support the evil man for re-election and they couldn't imagine voting for anyone but the evil man. And they have forgotten that they were only got behind him because of the lesser of two evils. I mean, I think there's a part of it too where just because you don't vote for someone, that once they're elected, you have an obligation to pray for them. You have an obligation to think about them in a way that's, an that's fair. To submit to you have an obligation Right, you have an obligation to to also consider them in a way that's biblical. And there's just part of it where, I mean, you've heard, I mean, you've heard us numerous times talk about, talk about positive things we think that Donald Trump has done. I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I'm not going to vote for Donald Trump. And at the same time, I can look at Donald Trump and go, I think Donald Trump did some things that were fantastic. I think he did some things that were very good. I think Donald Trump has had a very negative impact on America. I think he's had a huge negative impact on the American church. And the church has had a negative impact on the nation by following after him. But it doesn't mean that you it doesn't mean that just because you don't vote for him that you can't appreciate things that they've done that you you still have obligation I mean but there's this part of where like Joshua was saying once you go in and you you cloud your mind with lies you can't even think about things in a reasonable way anymore and this is part of the reason why we are as a nation is because we tell ourselves that to vote we have to believe lies we have to choose evil, and that affects our souls. It affects, it affects our very souls. And once we've voted for and supported evil, I mean, you know, Josh was saying to watch for this, but we should expect it, I'd strengthen the word, because the reality is everybody that does this feels guilty about having done it, so they have to ignore the guilt, which means they have to ignore the sin, which has to be that they whitewash the person in their mind. Because otherwise, if they didn't whitewash the person in their mind, they'd go, what did I do? But they know they want to vote for the lesser of two evils next time, so they start to whitewash the person in their mind. And that's just a natural response. So don't deceive yourself. It's unlikely that you'll be able to avoid that. And, you know, there's Christians out there. I would, you know, expect to vote for Democrats. And we might say, well, how could they do that? And, you know, I think they probably, I would argue that, you know, they have some misunderstandings of government, of what the Bible said about government. But in the end, some of it comes down to their valuation of things like, yeah, I'm against abortion, but this person isn't, you know, wants to help the poor. And so they just picked a different person as the lesser of two evils. And so they're voting for this horrible candidate. Um, but are the rest of us voting for a candidate that's almost as horrible? And we just come down on a different side of what horrible is. And one thing related to all this, too, is. What God says is that he gives authority because of faithfulness, not the other way around. So in the Luke 19, there's the parable about the nobleman that gives his servants minas. And so one of them he gives ten, one five, one two, one one. And when he comes back, the one with ten returns back twenty. 
And so this is what he says to him. He said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful and very little, have authority over ten cities. And it goes on, the one who does five, he gets five, rules over five cities, the one that does two, does two. The one who does not, is not faithful, he's cast out to be tormented. When we think about this, I mean, we should really think about this when we're voting. If we're faithful in our vote and we faithfully apply biblical principles to it, that's when we should expect to have authority in the society. Not when we say, well, I'm going to try to get my people to have authority and that's the way I'll do it. Faithfulness is what produces authority. Not because God's the one who appoints kings. Why would he appoint anybody from the church to be a faithful civil magistrate when the church refuses to be faithful in its voting and votes for people that would murder babies, votes for people that support homosexual support homosexuality like Donald Trump? You know, why would they vote why would God give us authority when we're not faithful with the very little that he's given us? And he says, you know, you are faithful in very little, so therefore have authority over ten cities. We shouldn't expect to receive authority from God unless we're faithful. I mean, you think about, are there scriptural examples of this? And sure, I mean, we, we quoted from the book of Daniel, but just take Daniel as a character study, as somebody who, I mean, you could say he's, he's probably the closest example we have of somebody who is a politician in an unrighteous society. You know, just roughly speaking. But yeah, but, what they have, but yeah. But he's got plenty of cases where he has opportunities to act pragmatically. And he always chooses the principled step, no matter what it might potentially cost. Or you look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the same book. And they have options to, well, let's eat the the rich food or obey God. Or they've got options to, should we really tell the king what he may not want to hear? Or, hey, should I really pray when I know? know? But there's at every point along the way, Daniel does the principled thing. He never seems to waver from doing the principled thing. And everybody knows Daniel's going to do the principled thing. They try and set him up for that. And you know what happens? Daniel becomes the third high ruler in the land. I mean, when you, and when you, talk, about, when you talk about God giving authority and power in the world, I do think there's this part of it where people look at, they look at the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans, and they look at them and they don't understand why they're different. Because like Joshua was saying, there are Christians who will vote for Democrats. And I actually do think, it, you know, there are people who go, hey, both sides are corrupt and they're equally corrupt. I don't think that's completely fair. I actually but when you get down to a specific race, that might— Right, that might know, be true to a specific race. Democrat, but in the but, end, the left and the right, they're not mirror images of each other. They're not, they're not mirror images in their evil. The, the right actually has things on it that come from scriptural principles that, that are still left in them. But the reason why that is is because the church has been associated with the right for a long period of time. And the reason why it's fading is because the church is growing more corrupt. And so there's this part of it where I think when people see the Republicans, they go, we have to choose that. But they don't understand that the church is the cause of whatever little righteousness is left. And that's what I was kind of saying is we're chasing after the scraps of our of God's ref, God has shined His glory down on the church. The church has reflected it into the world. It has had an impact in the world, and it's lesser than it was. You know, the world is less than the church was, and we're out there and we're grabbing the scraps of that glory as if that's what's good. And so I think there's just this there's just this completely fundamental misunderstanding of where that goodness comes from, and so we're grabbing it and we think that now we'll shine with that light. 
as opposed to turning back to God and saying, if it was ever better, it was better because of you. If, it was, if there was ever a point where there was more righteousness, it was because we obeyed you, not because we fawned after these men. And I think that's, I mean, that's fundamentally what's wrong with the church. And when you talk about scraps, right, like Donald Trump just did a, you know, one of his things that he does and, and added at the end of it, right, he says, and God will, will reward us and God will, because he knows that that little scrap, he can, right, the meek will inherit the earth. You cannot describe Donald Trump as meek. Right. He is not a Christian. He is not meek. It's just obvious by everything that he does. And yet he knows that the church will run after him and follow him if he just throws God in a couple times. That's how desperate the church is for scraps. And that's not what the Church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be like. So we do have instruction from the, you know, in the Bible, because as I said in the introduction, that, that you know, the Bible is to equip us for every good work. And I think we've been talking about how, you know, voting is a good work. It is an influence that we have on this society. Which doesn't mean that you have to vote for somebody evil, but you should participate as a civil magistrate. And so if you go back to the scripture and you look, there's there's two places primarily in the scriptures where where Moses is being instructed or instructing um, what you should look for in civil magistrates. One's in Exodus 18, the other's in Deuteronomy 1, which is relating what happened in Exodus 18. But in Exodus 18, 21, it says, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hiding covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of ten. So if we're going to look for a place to say, okay, this is, this is what we should look for for our civil magistrates, and we know the scripture has to cover it because it says it does, it seems to me that this is the place that you go, to Exodus 18. And the rules aren't that hard. You know, it starts first with men. So one of the first things it says here is that they should be men, and actually they should be men as, and not women. And where we are in our society, that's such a big issue on its own that we're going to do a separate episode just specifically on that topic is why does God say that men should be the people, those who are in authority? Why does God put men in this position, and how does this glorify God? But just while we're here, we should just point out it says they should be men, and, and that's you know, that's not a catch-all word that just, oh, they should be humans. It's they should actually be male. And that episode should be posted after this one. So if you are angry about that, please, you know, listen to next week's episode. Able men. So, but, I mean, you know, I remember during one of the primaries and people were looking at uh, Dr. Carson and saying, oh, you know, such an, an upstanding Christian man. But, but he didn't have the experience to really be an administrator like you need in order to be the president. He just didn't have that kind of background. And so you can say he might be a perfectly fine man, certainly more moral than a lot of the alternatives, but does he pass the standard of being able? And able is also really important because if they're not able, they're not going to get things done either. You know, if they don't have the competency to you know, operate in that role and live out, you know, the fear of God, the truth, the hating covetousness, those type of characteristics that they need to have. They're not going to get things done. You know, you can you can vote for someone now and they go into office and some people can get things done and some people can't. And that's and that's part of that is are they an able man? And the Hebrew word there that means able, it actually is usually translated like strength, valor, 
it's translated armies at times. And so that idea of able is also that they don't get tossed around everywhere, that they'll actually do what they say. So, so often, how often have people voted for, you know, you can think of a lot of the Republican presidents. I think Donald Trump was kind of shocking that he actually, when he got into office, actually did some of the things that he was saying that he was going to do. Most of the other ones, as soon as they get into office, they completely ignore what they ran on. And that's true of Democrats. That's true of Republicans. But yet, you know, the idea of an able man is that he's also going to have the strength, not just the ability to do it, but also have the strength so that he doesn't just kind of move with the with the tides. I mean, there's a part of it where unless you're able, that's part of able, right? I mean, I mean, even even the way we think of able is there are presidents who had a great agenda, but they weren't able to see it through. They weren't able to stand firm. They weren't. They just they just lacked the ability in the end. And there's this part of it where I mean, I think we've we've somehow how separated knowledge and all these other things from, and we said, well, that's ability. You know, the actual ability is actually the ability to actually accomplish. Right. And so, I mean, there is this part of it where, I mean, and th- I think this is part of the reason why Donald Trump actually was more successful than people thought he might be is because we had gotten so used to presidents who actually were not able, they were just good politicians. They were just good at saying words. They were just good at doing some of these things. And Donald Trump actually had ability in the world. And so he was not good politically. He had some real issues. I mean, but in the end, he, there was such a contrast between someone who actually went in and did things and accomplished things, and that was that was rare. Hey, we keep going back to president, and I do want to throw in the comment that you know when you read Leviticus 18, it says leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of ten. So when we're saying these things, these things are not just about the president, right? This is about your mayor. This is about your county commissioner. This is about the lower offices. You're supposed to look at people who will actually stand for something and have principles and stand firm and work to get those principles enacted instead of somebody that's just wishy-washy and wants the position, wants the title. There's plenty of people that run because they love the title. And these leaders of 10 would have been like leaders of like 10 families, right? I mean, And probably extended families. Right. So that might be a thousand people. Right. That's, I mean, so I think that's because I think we, we live in such a individualistic world that when we hear leaders of 10, we just think, of, oh, that's a father. You know what I mean? But I mean, right. in the end, I mean, this this would have been someone who led a, you know, a, a small town, a small, you know, I mean, a, a small a small unit of, uh, you know, social unit. Yeah, when Paul's writing this, he's writing theologically, but I think it applies in the civil sphere as well. It applies in every sphere. You know, Ephesians 4.14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. You know, again, he's talking in theological, but... He's basically saying, this is what children look like. And I think a lot of the people that we elect to office, they basically look like children. There's a reason why George Herbert Walker Bush, why he, you know, didn't get reelected. He said, read my lips, no new taxes. And then he went and signed a bill for new taxes. And I'll tell you what, the reason he did is he fell to the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. He was a mature man, but yet he acted like a child when he got into office. And so it's really important to pick people that are not going to fall for these things when people go, well, you'll never get reelected unless you do this, which is what they told you know, President Bush. And so all of a sudden he does it. And this is just not the kind of person you want to look for. What you want to look for is somebody that will actually stand on principle. I do think it's – I think we're kind of – I may be going back a little bit, but when you talked about the fact of 
t- you know, the tens, hundreds, thousands, ten thousands. There's this part of it where we've forgotten that one of the one of the traditions of American politics is that people worked their way up. I mean, this has been true for a very long time. Is that a lot of you know, almost no one just suddenly went and became a governor, just suddenly went and became a senator. I mean, they they held very local offices. They moved their way up. I mean, there were offices that were that you could you could pivot from and you could move from. But the the much more common and normal thing was is that you did move up through the ranks politically. You did have to move from points of lower authority and get practice and get experience and move your way up because that's how you hone ability. That's how you hone actual skill, and that's how you're actually able to stand in front of a nation and lead an a- lead an actual nation. And that's something that we've sort of we've kind of lost some of the idea of that. That just you know this idea of just that it doesn't matter who they are, that it doesn't matter what experience they have, as long as they're saying things you like, and as long as they're good at saying things in front of you, that they're going to be able to lead. I was actually going to say the way that the U.S. typically appoints, you know, especially the higher level offices. But it's usually the person who can deal best with the media and with cameras. And so you look at Donald Trump, and yeah, when he walked into office, he was woefully unprepared. I mean, that's what happened with Flynn. That would happen. I mean, he was just unprepared to, to lead the government. And the reason was is because we don't care if they're able to lead the government. That's not the ability that we're looking for. What we're looking at is the ability to control the media. Because the person who gets the best press, they're probably going to win. Or the most press. And Donald Trump had that ability far better than his opponent. And so he got elected because that's what we think presidents should be. We think that there should be people, ever since JFK, we think they should be people that are telegenic and that are good with the media and are good on television and people want to watch them and hear them. And and that was Donald Trump. Didn't people vote for Trump because he was this great businessman? I don't think so. I think they voted for Donald Trump because he got so much free media because he was able to manipulate the media. Probably, but I don't know if that's why they thought they were voting no, no, no. for him. <laughs> <laughs> now, that I completely agree with. They wouldn't have said that, but the reality is people frequently don't think through what they're doing. What they're doing is saying, I could see him as my president. Right. He was he was presidential in that way. And that, like JFK versus Nixon, people that heard it on the radio said, I hear a president in Nixon and people who saw it on television said I see a president in JFK and so JFK won the election because we switched to from just verbal that went back to FDR to what do you look like and this is kind of a form of the nation chasing after scraps because in the end television and images we know we know that that doesn't have any substance. I mean, whenever when television was coming out, there was a point where there was you know there was a point where everything was written, where you would read position papers, you would read what they said, and then there was radio where they would say it, and people would analyze their words and pay great attention to it. And now when video comes out, it becomes how did they look when they say it? How did they present themselves? How, and and each one of those steps moves further and further away from actually analyzing things that matter. And I mean, you missed a step in there, which is it went from written to personal appearances, and okay. then it went to got to it. Radio. Yeah. And the personal because that was shocking when like, you know, Andrew Jackson started to do personal opinion, uh, you know, like actually campaign. Right. What you do is you write what your positions are and other people campaign for you. And so, you know, that was a big shift there because that's where you start to get away from. This is what my positions are to this is what I look like. This is what I sound like. I look presidential. This is what I made you feel. You know, we probably all heard this quote by Rahm Emanuel. You never let a serious crisis go to waste. And what I mean by that is it's an opportunity to do things you think you could not do before. When you don't pick able men, 
don't complain when they go and grab power. Don't complain when they're manipulated. Don't complain when there's people in government like Rahm Emanuel who go, this is happening because there will always be unexpected things happening. And if you pick an unprincipled man that won't stand by where, you know, the things that he stated, why would you not expect him to be swept away? And you can see this. You can see this at every level. I mean, it's it's the you know. I mean, it's one of those things where when people, I mean, when a crisis happens, people are either occupied or they're afraid. I mean, those are the two. You know, and so when people are busy, when people are tied up, the people who are who have to be managed. You know, like any parents ever seen this? There's the old saying: when the cat's away, the mice will play. There's this part, and there's this part, and so there's this part of it where I mean, this is what goes on. And I think it's it's one of those things that when you look at yourself, when you look at a leader. One of these things is we need to kind of flip these things back on ourselves and ask ourselves, are we trying to be able men at the level that God has appointed us? Because there's a part of it where if we don't hold ourselves accountable, we actually feel guilty holding other people accountable. I mean, and there, so there is this right. part of it where, I mean, when you see these things, when you hear these things, you need to ask yourself, am I being an able person? At, at, you know, if, if I'm not trying to be an able person, how am I even going to be able to evaluate someone else? How am I even going to be able to look at them and say, this is what it means to do that. This is what I expect someone who wants to lead me. I expect them to be better at this than I am. I expect them to be stronger than I am. And I mean, just to make sure people recognize this happens at every level, because it's easy to not think that. I was speaking to a county commissioner once, and the county commissioner, they were opening a new landfill. And he said the mob came and visited him and said, this is the, because the mob controls a lot of the, a lot of the waste disposal industry. And he said, you know, this is the one you'll vote for. Your family's in danger. So don't think this doesn't happen at the lowest levels. This happens at the lowest levels of politics that you have to decide, am I going to vote for somebody who will stand firm or am I going to vote for somebody that will cave at that point? He didn't run for re-election, by the way. <laughs> if you're not strong, if you're not a strong person, there's this part of it where if you know you elect someone, and even if they are someone who might maybe could be strong, if they know that everyone's going to crucify them, you you put them in a position where you're tempting them to be weak. You're te- you know what I mean I mean so there's this part of it where we look at our leaders and we go why don't we have leaders like this because they get destroyed because you would destroy them because everybody would tell lies about them and you'd believe the lies you know what I mean and so there's this part of it where we you know there's there's a pretty common saying is people get the leaders they deserve and. I think that's, in general, that's pretty true. I mean, and I'm a, to my third anecdote on one podcast, which is rare, but another story that I, I know somebody who used to do commercials for Republican congressmen, you know, especially before they were elected. And he said every single time that he would get these people elected that seemed so solid, as soon as they went up to the U.S. Congress, they immediately folded. Because the pressure that you're sending them to to conform in the House of Representatives, to conform to the majority leader, is incredibly high. And so you really need men that you know that, I mean, they're, they should be people that are tested by fire, not just people that, that, you know, look good politically. And the most important way to know whether somebody will fold is where their fear is, which is why, you know, the next criteria is they have to fear God. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. If they don't fear God, they're not going to hate evil. If they don't fear God, they'll be, because it's in a position where everybody's trying to puff up their pride. Everybody's trying to say what a special person they are when they get elected. 
And so if they don't have fear of God, you can expect the office to destroy them. There's a part of it where, I mean, if, if right now in your mind, if you imagine what a savvy, capable, competent, powerful leader looked like, and you imagine what he was like in private, and then you read this verse, would that, you know, does hating evil even play into it? Does, does hating perverseness, his mouth not being perverse? You know, when you think about these things, what you, th- I mean, the image that's been presented to us and that's been most common to us is that, you know, when they're by themselves, that they, that they, you know, they openly seek to do evil things, that they love, you know, that their mouth is full of filthy language and filth. I mean, and it doesn't mean that every leader has to be exactly like that. I'm just saying when you think of someone who's powerful and capable, that's the image of an American leader. We don't think of someone who's honest. We don't think, you know, we don't think of any of those things. And so, I mean, there's a real problem with that. There's a real problem that that's kind of our idealization, in a sense, of what it means to be a strong, capable leader in America. You kind of said about, you know, we pick people that aren't able and we just are pragmatic because, the you know, the church is just looking for scraps from the world. And the reality is, you know, unless the church fears God, it can never expect leaders to fear God. Right. And the church doesn't preach the fear of God very much. So we should stop complaining about our corrupt leaders because we're fine with arrogant leaders. We're fine with proud leaders. We're fine with leaders that, that love evil. Because we know what it takes to not do these things, and the reality is the church doesn't want to fear God. Right. So it doesn't have that big of a problem with evil because, hey, what's God going to do about it? God loves everyone. And, you know, this is, this is a pretty basic you know, qualification. Because uh, well, a big thing a few years ago was we're not electing a pastor in chief, which is true. You're, it doesn't say he has the qualifications for eldership. Um, but he doesn't doesn't say he needs a seminary degree. He needs to be able to quote John Calvin. What what it doesn't say that. It says a very basic qualification, which is fear God. But that's also a qualification that if you ask most Christians, do you fear God? It, it would stump a lot of them because people just have forgotten the the fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom. It's something that a lot of people don't don't understand that. I mean, would you say that that goes back to the messaging of the church, that fear doesn't really mean fear? Fear means respect. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a form of love, you know, but fear, God, in the Bible, doesn't really mean fear. Yeah, it's that twisting of Scripture to their own destruction. <laughs> I would right. definitely tie those two I mean, together. and then you get to the verse that says, don't fear him who can destroy the body. Fear him who can destroy the body and the soul. Well, that means respect. <laughs> right. right. No. Respect the one that can destroy the body and the soul. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, I mean, he's saying the guy with the gun who could kill you and shoot you, don't have fear of him. Fear the person who could kill you and shoot you and also kill your soul. I mean, I mean, it's just, it's really basic. It's, it's not, I mean, and we just, we want to play games with it and we want to pretend like, we, you know, there's. I mean, I do think there's also this part of it where everybody goes. Does that mean every person you elect has to be a Christian? And and I mean, and I don't know that they absolutely have to be a Christian, but they sh- you should see things in their life that make you believe they have the fear of God. Right. Which I would argue that you know Proverbs nine ten, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's not saying salvation. Right. That's saying they fear God. In the reality is that there are plenty of people who fear God when the church is healthy and when the church is teaching the nature of God 
if the, if the church is teaching why Jesus Christ had to die on the cross, because let's be serious, it's fear of the God is why Jesus Christ had to die on the cross. If there was no judgment for sin, why would Christ have to die on the cross? Without fear of God, you've eliminated Jesus Christ, right? Because you need a savior because there's the wrath of God that you need to be saved from. And so, but when you, when the church stops teaching that, then people don't fear God. But when the church is faithfully teaching that, you can have a lot of people who fear God that aren't saved, but they also start to understand the world, right? Because the, the beginning, it's the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so the only way you can understand the world is with fear of God. And so if you want somebody to be competent too, and actually help a nation rather than just just be a maintainer of the nation, right? The last the purpose of these caretaker presidents is just to kind of slow down the decay of the nation. They're not like actually trying to make the nation greater or stronger. They're just trying to slow down the decay. And most of them wouldn't see it that way, but we can all look and see what the nature of this country is. And it's a decaying country and the presidents are just trying to slow down the decay. Well, because you can't understand what's going on without the fear of God until the church starts to teach the fear of God and the church starts to say, we'll only vote for people who fear God. You can't expect them to understand the world. How would they? Because the world is constructed so that we can see who God is. If you reject God, then you reject all understanding of the world. And, and when we talk about, when you're talking about like this being, that fear of God being different than salvation and what this looks like in reality. This goes back to the argument I've been making that the church is what really is the source of light in the world. So if you go back to George W. Bush, his first, in his first campaign for president, George W. Bush did not campaign on Sundays. In his second campaign, he did campaign on Sundays. And what I would say you could see in those two things is, is in the first campaign, he believed that campaigning on Sundays would negatively impact his campaign. If he campaigned on Sundays, he thought there were enough people out there who would look at that and say, that's not what someone who fears God would do, and he didn't do it. Four years later, he said, I can campaign on Sundays. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, when you look at it, so you're, you know, you're asking, do they have to be a Christian? You should look at them and go, what are the evidences of their fear of God? And that can't just be, oh, well, they have sound fiscal policy. I mean, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's not an evidence. That's not fundamentally an evidence of the fear of God. But I remember, I mean, looking and saying, can I vote for George W. Bush? And I think I voted for him in his first campaign. And then I looked at what he had been doing, and that wasn't the only change he had made. And I didn't vote for him in his second one. And there's this part of it where you look at it and you go, is this a person who fears God? Do they have an evidence of this in their life? And it doesn't mean that you, that you necessarily hold them, to, like you said, to the same standard by any means that you would hold your pastor to. But... When I heard people say, we're not electing a pastor-in-chief, my first thought was, how low is your standard for pastor? <laughs> I mean, when there's their argument about Donald Trump, and they go, well, we're not electing a pastor-in-chief, and you go, how can you even compare them? I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, I, but in the end, for them, that was, for a lot of them, that wasn't a jump. That wasn't that big of a jump to go, well, you know, I mean, my, my pastor is, is a different thing. But I think, their, I think their standard for pastor is probably a lot lower than it should be. And I think, so, I mean, we just really need to understand the church is what drives these things. And even the politicians are looking at the church saying, what will the church let me get away with? In like First Timothy, where it says that to be a qualified as an elder, they need to be able to rule their own house well. Otherwise, they shouldn't rule the house of God. 
Well, that argument works in the state, too. Even though you're not electing a pastor in chief, there's a logical argument that's being made there. How do you figure out if somebody's able? Well, you look at their family. Right. Right? I mean, that's that's how you tell if a man's able as a pastor. Why would we think that that... And if you look at President Biden's family, not a great testimony. Donald Trump's marriage is not a great testimony, but actually his child raising is a lot better testimony than his than his marriages. He definitely beats President Biden in those things. By miles. By miles. And so as we look at these things, I mean, we're saying, yeah, we're not electing a pastor in chief, but some of those things that are applied, they're applicable to both. If he's not fit, if he can't rule his own household, how can he rule the nation? I mean, you think about it, you don't even need to make a jump to compare it to presidents. What Paul was saying is, is a physical household, you can compare it to a spiritual household. You don't even have to make an analogy to compare it. This is, if he can't lead one household well, why should he be leading 10 households? Right. Why should he be living 50? Right. It, why it should requires he be leading 100? no why he be leading logical or rhetorical. I mean, it's, it's, it's the most basic comparison you can make. It's just a bigger household. Paul was just saying. Oh, it's say, a number of households. If right. you're not ruling one well, why do you think you'd rule 10 well? Right. And again, this applies at all levels. I mean, if if... You know, if you're electing a county commissioner, you should be looking and saying, what's their family like? Because and there's an intrinsic sense that people understand this. This is why usually the front page of most campaign websites are the person with his wife and children, right? I mean, people understand that, that this works because people are still judging that. But we should be, obviously, when it gets to a different level, when they're further away, we stop judging it with the same standards that we do for lower level. You know, we're talking about what does the fear of God look like? I mean, I think one of the one of the ways that that shows itself most is in the the next uh, next qualification is men of truth, people who who tell the truth. Specifically, uh, the, the intersection of those would be keeping their oaths, keeping their oaths of office, keeping their marriage vows, because that's you know that's keeping a promise, and it's a special type of promise that says you know God punish me if I break this promise. And you can see this, I mean, this is a verse that I actually don't hear quoted that often when it talks about lying, but it's a, it's... it's I quoted a, a lot, Charles. I, <laughs> I don't hear many people besides him say this to me. <laughs> um, this is one of Dan's favorite verses, but I mean, I, he was the first person I'd ever heard quoted relating to lying, Isaiah fifty-seven eleven, And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me nor taken it to your heart? Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? I mean, and this is—I mean, I, I think we just we forget how often we lie because of fear. And I think—I mean, and what he's saying is—is is you're pretty much. This is always, why you always lie. <laughs> always lie because of fear. You know, I mean, you're you're standing a false fear, right? Right. You're because standing you in front of God, someone, you and you're afraid of right. You know, if I say this, what will he think of me? What will he think? They won't like this truth. They won't. I mean, because in the end, I mean, hey. If you can't stand in a ballot box where nobody else is around and put a checkbox or or not put a checkbox next to a name, if you can't in the privacy of that moment do that, you're not going to be able to stand up to anything else in your life. And the, the reason why we don't do this is because we want to walk out and people go, hey, did you vote for so-and-so? And we want to go, yeah, I did. And we want to be able to say that. And we don't want to have to look at him and go, no, I didn't because he's not qualified. 
And we don't want to have that conversation and we don't want to hear what they have to say and we don't want to lose the relationship with them. And they're going to look at, we might lose business opportunities. We might lose friendships. We might lose fellowship. We might, you know, the person who we used to go over to their house, now the conversation's a little more, well, no, does that mean you don't do, what about this? And what about, I mean, and all those things. And so when we stand, I mean, this is, this is why a person walks into a ballot box and they know all these things and they go, I have to vote for this because in the end, they don't fear God sufficiently. They fear other things. And they go, I'm going to lie and say that this person is qualified. I'm going to lie and say that this evil is good. And they put a check next to the name. I'm, I'm not, it's not really a check. Don't put a yeah, check. You put the You're check and it doesn't circle. count. I, I, I checked his name. <laughs> Actually, yeah. this, that's how we get this to work. You put a check in the box. That's all you do. <laughs> if it's evil, it's a check. If it's right, you fill in that. Exactly. That's, if that's, it's the lesser of two evils, please use a check mark. Check, that's, <laughs> they keep track of those things. I mean, so I look at this and I say, yeah, it says right there in Exodus, they have to be men of truth. But we got to the point where we just, we accept politicians lie. And and I'm going to vote for somebody who's a liar just because that's that's the only oh, options but, I have. This, but is, Jonathan, this is what politicians do. You're not allowed to say that. You say... They just misrepresented it or they mis right? I mean, we come up with all these euphemisms so that we don't have to call them liars. And like in Congress, you're not allowed to call them a liar. You could say, well, you misrepresented that, but you're not allowed to say you just lied. Because we hate the idea of lying, but we accept people lying. I don't know that we hate the idea of lying. People get really mad if you call them a liar. I mean, hey, Donald Trump is a liar. President Biden is a liar. But that's considered to be scandalous talk. But that's just a description. This is what they are. Well, but only, people think that's a really horrible slander. Well, only one of those is scandalous, depending on who you're talking <laughs> to. I mean, the other one is an obvious fact, depending on who you're talking to. And if you were comparing them, I mean, everybody pretends like Donald Trump is the biggest liar we've ever had. I don't think Donald Trump is even even close to the biggest liar we've ever. I, had. I don't think he's a, he might, it depends on me my biggest. I don't think he's the best. He may be, he may weigh more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I mean I don't think he's the best liar. No, he's not the best. But he's I'm just a saying, horrible liar. He's a, I mean I mean a lot a lot of what they I mean and that's what I mean is you know so I mean I'm the point of this isn't which one lies more but I'm just saying when you even look at our acceptance of lies we accept polished lies we accept certain types of lies we like certain lies better than other lies there are lies that are more politically correct than you know but i mean we but expect I'd... certain kinds of lies we we expect that somebody's going to make campaign promises and then not follow through on it we just and we think that's the way that things work and you know we might ask well how do we know if if the politicians are lying you know, they're not in office Well, the yet. old saying well, is if they're opening well, their mouth. But <laughs> assuming that there are people out there who don't lie, because I think there are people yes. out there who don't lie, uh, politicians even, um, or people running for office. But, you know, how do we know if they're lying? Well, the, maybe once upon a time the, they constrained themselves to lying only on important occasions, at least obviously lying. But these days, you don't have to wait for them to be in office because they're promising to do things that is not in their power to do. Well, I mean, we could probably give 50 examples with presidential candidates, but I just got a mailer yesterday from uh, the current state senator, and she is saying that she is going to fix the inflation that Biden is causing. I don't have to do any research to know whether she is lying because that is not in the power of the state Senate. The state Senate is not causing inflation. They're not printing money. They can't fix inflation. 
she can lower taxes, she can't fix inflation. That's as simple as it gets. She right. she's lying. You know, even if we try not to lie, most people at some point they lie and they have lies that they're it's not uncommon for people in America today to have lies that they tell regularly that they're comfortable with. And hey, we should be, you know, you say people lie, and I just want to say, you know, Jesus no, excuse me, not Jesus Christ, but God says in Isaiah, my children do not lie. Right. Those who are saved don't lie. Every liar has their place appointed in the lake of fire. And so the church just kind of goes, everybody lies. Well, that's not what God says. He says those who are saved stop being liars. That's one of the fundamental things that they do is they stop being liars. And so we've just gotten to the point where we go, this is just how society is. Everybody lies. Well, that's a real huge failure of the church, like a huge failure of the church. And if you want to know more about lying, we did a whole episode on lying and whether it's ever okay to lie. Is that true? (laughs) That was a joke. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's true. Watch the episode to find out. (laughs) Yeah, when you read the Second London Baptist Confession, on its section on oath and vows, it says, Whosoever takes an oath warranted by the word of God ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act. And therein to avouch nothing by what he knows to be truth. For that by rash, false, and vain oaths, the Lord is provoked. And for them, this land mourns. Now, I don't think that's true in every land at all times. But I think it was true in England and in the 17th century. And I think it's true in the United States. Our constitutional republic is built on the idea that you take an oath to uphold the Constitution. It is built on the idea of oaths, not to men, but to a constitution, to the rule of law. And we have now completely rejected that. One of the first things that they vote for every time that they come in, the first vote that they do, they usually have violated the Constitution, every Congress that we elect. And we should recognize this isn't like a minor thing with God. God is very serious about oaths. And when he says, you ta- all, all your leaders, you intentionally pick people that will take an oath to uphold the Constitution, knowing that the first thing that they do, the things that they ran on, were all about violating the Constitution. So we should just recognize, again, the responsibility of the church for the state of the society. Since the church doesn't fear God, we don't worry about us. Because we don't worry about us, this land mourns. And, and, those, and you mean specific things. You mean like a husband keeping an oath to a wife. You mean things like a, a family keeping or, or individuals within a family keeping their oaths of church membership to a particular church, you know. And we're just saying, hey, the church has said these things are meaningless. They're small. They're little. We don't perjury. care about we them. We don't think perjury is God serious. doesn't care about them. And so, and and you want to hold your politicians to a higher standard. No, you don't. Right. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we're a nation under the wrath of God because we love to blaspheme God. And we want the first thing that our elected officials do is to blaspheme God at every level. At every level, they all take an oath. They take an oath through the Constitution of North Carolina and the Constitution of the United States when they become a civil officer in North Carolina. They all take oaths. Police and they officers all vote. take it. So, uh, soldiers take it. Soldiers take it. I and, mean, we, and then we immediately go and violate it. And we have an expectation that they'll all violate it. And, again, the secular people, they don't know what an oath is. But the church is supposed to care. One of the... One of the ways that you worship the true God is you take oaths in his name. That's what the Old Testament says, that this is one of the ways to know that you're worshiping God is you take oaths in his name. 
And so when we take oaths and think we can violate it, it is saying God has no power. And God is part- not to be feared. And if you look at if you look on the Republican side, one of the things we talk about a lot is the the Constitution. And I think that people forget the necessity of oaths because there's this part of it where we think that the words of the Constitution and the words of the Constitution there there is a really useful structure that was laid out there. But what made it so useful was everyone took an oath to uphold that structure. And what was powerful was people said when they saw someone make a decision you aren't keeping your word. And that is what held people in their place. It was this requirement of those in power to not abuse their power because they had, and what that, and that was defined by the words that they had taken an oath to. And so what we've forgotten is, is we've held up the piece of paper as if the paper had this power. But in the end, it was really, it was all of us saying, we will hold you to your oath. And we trust that God will hold you to your oath. Right. Right, and if you deny the fact that God will hold someone to their oath, well, then I mean, you know, if you then it's just whether you can get away with it or not, which is where we are as a nation. Yes. If you're following along in Exodus, I guess the next one is. I mean, I, I love the wording of this one. It's men who hate covetousness, and that's it's interesting that it throws that that extra intensifier on there. And it's not just that it's men who aren't covetous, but men who hate covetousness. And it, it, I mean, when you put somebody in that kind of a position, you give them opportunities to act on covetousness, and you, and you're also putting them in a position where they are going to have to make decisions about the covetousness of others. And so, well, what kind of person do you want there? You want somebody who hates covetousness. That's another reason why you want them to go up through a system like that, right? Because if there's leaders of ten, and then leaders of fifty, and leaders of hundreds then you've seen when they're leaders of 10, do they actually hate covetousness, right? Because all of a sudden there's a whole new set of temptations. And let's just remember, I mean, you're talking about what's the U.S. budget, $4 trillion or something like that. Somebody could skim 0.001% and still be richer than Musk, right? I mean, it's like a huge amount of money, like unbelievable amount of money. And yet we would think, you know, oh, they don't have to actively hate covetousness. No, they do, because there's just so easy for them to steal so much money. And, you know, you have all the lobbyists there that are pushing them to steal it, pushing them to, well, we'll give you a campaign contribution. You know, you give us $10 million, we'll give you a $100,000 campaign contribution. I mean, this stuff happens all the time. And if it's somebody that's just going, and we've structured our system so that all the the U.S. congressmen, they're always trying to fundraise, which is a sign of not hating covetousness because they're all going, we need money, we need money. And, yes, they're spending it to maintain their power, but they're all going, we need money. And, you know, and and not to justify our current system, but I think this is one that we have, you know, well, this isn't saying much, but I think we have less of a problem with this in America now than some of the other ones because we're not, you know, even though we have a huge budget, you know, our politicians leave as millionaires having, you know, several homes. They're not like Nigeria, which I'm sure has a much lower budget, and the top people leave as billionaires. So we do, you know, we we have some corruption, but there are a lot of rules in place. And, you know, are they the right rules? Are they enforced? You know, but there are a lot of requirements that they can raise the money, but they can only use it for these things. And, the and you know, it, the, a lot of evil is constrained, and there is a big limit on how far covetousness goes. And But the issue that, that uh, you know, Leviticus is talking about is not so much that you put 
constraints in place, because I agree, we have better constraints in place than most countries do. But what you're supposed to do is to choose people that aren't covetous, that hate covetousness, which is very different than saying we're going to keep put, putting a bigger and bigger and more complicated structure of law to constrain them so that Nancy Pelosi can only make $100 million rather than a billion dollars or whatever she's made, right? Because she's made a huge amount of money as a, as a politician because her husband basically doesn't work um, or does very little. He does stock investments. You know, and so there are a lot of people that are making a lot of money, but we do have a better structure to constrain it. But what you really want to do is pick people who aren't covetous and who actually want to fight against it. And the way you see that is you're not going to see that when you send somebody to Washington. The way you see that is when you make them a county commissioner and see what they do and you see where they really are. Covetousness is that you're satisfied with the wages you receive from your Lord. You know what I mean? That, in other words, mm-hmm. that, and so there's this part of it where, I mean, that someone else can't tempt you. They can't come in and lure you away, that something else can't pull you away. This is your job. This is your work. This is the oath you've made. These are the things you've done. This is the wages that your Lord has given you. And you go, great, I will live in this constraint, and this is, and I will be contented inside that. And that's, that's really, in contentment, this is the opposite of covetousness. And I'll argue with myself here because on the one hand, we don't have as much of a problem with covetousness. On the other hand, we have politicians who maybe they're limited in how much they enrich themselves, but they'll, you know, suck in huge amounts of wealth from the country to have the government use on the things that they think is important that the Constitution didn't say they were supposed to be doing. Or that will have a, a road named after them or a bridge named after them or a you know, a courthouse named after them. So it's not covetous with personal wealth, but there is a lot of covetousness in terms of being known. And that's why it's, I mean, that's why I like the way that it's phrased. It doesn't say that they're not just personally not covetous, but that they hate covetousness. It's supposed, it's, it's one of the duties of their office to be going after covetousness. As opposed to in the United States now, most congressmen run somewhere if they're incumbent going, look at how much money I brought back to the district. They run on covetousness. Right. We know you're all covetous. We know that you want to get as much of from the public trough that you can. So look at all this stuff that I got for you. And I mean, just a few comments ago, Joshua, you introduced the word corruption here. And I think it's if you want to say, well, what is government corruption? Government corruption, I mean, there's there's other things we've talked about here, but you could boil almost all of it down to it's some form or other of covetousness being acted out. Facilitating covetousness, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it is worth considering for Samuel where, where Samuel's telling Israel, you don't want a king. Because in 1 Samuel 8, 11 through 18, it says, And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. The Lord will not hear you in that day because you want somebody that will take 10% and we've decided we want somebody that will take 40%. 
why would the Lord hear the prayers when we're willing to accept men that are so covetous that they take 40% and not just 10%? So when uh, in Deuteronomy 113, where this is, again, where we say in Exodus kind of gets recapitulated or retold in Deuteronomy. So here's, here's a verse there that kind of fleshes out some more of the criteria. Take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribe, and I will make them rulers over you. And so one of the things here is that they— uh, One thing I should note, we usually use the New King James, but I use the King James here because I think it's actually closer to the meaning of the Hebrew. What did the King James, New King James change? It or? says that um, knowledgeable no, okay. rather than and known among your tribes. Okay. It's knowledgeable men among your tribes rather than no known men. men among your tribes. And I think that the right rendering to me makes more sense to be known men among your tribes. Right. I mean, and, and there, so, so, the, so the phrase that we're talking about here is the aspect of being, that being known men and, and what that means. And I mean, and there, is a, there is a part of that that starts to touch on sometimes people hate the idea of politics and they hate the, they just completely, we just, if we could get politics out of government. And there is an aspect of, there's a, there's a necessity to politics. There's a necessity of, you have to sit down and talk to people and you have to listen to them and you have to come up with a solution that works for multiple you people. You have to call them. <laughs> you have to, to call them and talk to them and listen to them. And, and, and that's painful and that's difficult. And that, it takes a certain type of person to do those things. And I mean, in, in the end, what it takes is a faithful man and what we've turned it into is we've turned it into it takes men with just only a very specific skill set. But, I mean, to actually do it and do it in the way it must be done, where you actually listen to people and come up with something that actually works and is just, that takes faithful men. But there is an aspect of politics that can't be eliminated from this job. You have to be willing to do that work. And part of it is to be open enough so that people can see who you really are. And to some extent, when we talk about military leaders, I mean, it's one of the advantages of military leaders. It's because military leaders have been put in a position of great visibility. And so people saw how they acted in certain areas. And so they go, oh, he'd be good. And it doesn't always work. It also I mean, frequently doesn't Grant work. showed people who he was, and they still wanted and him. They still wanted him. But the point is, is that he was a known man. He was a known quantity. He wasn't somebody that was secretive that just popped up. We... Now in our politics, whether it's President Obama would be a good example. There's so often that we just want the black horse candidate that we don't, nobody knows about, Jimmy Carter, and that he just pops into prominence when he had no, when he's not known by anybody. Right. And especially, I think this is even worse in Christian circles where Jerry Falwell runs. Well, what do you know about Jerry Falwell? Not much, and especially not much in terms of how he would ru rule or how he, you know how he would have been a, a, a politician. And especially in Christian circles, I think that there's the idea of you don't need to be known. You don't need to actually have proof that this is what you're like in those circumstances. Earlier we were talking about how a, you know, a politician used to write down his positions, and then other people would go and campaign for him. And there's this part of it where, I mean, this is an aspect of being known among men is – he could write these things, and there were other people who could go and say, I've worked with him, I've dealt with him, I've seen, you know what I mean? And they would talk about the specifics of their work with him. There are people who have people who have very different views who will campaign for people because they said, this person is trustworthy. You know what I mean? I, I don't actually like some of the things he stands for, but I'll tell you this, when he made me a promise, he kept it every single time. And there was a point where that sort of campaigning actually mattered. And so... Some of what we're saying is, is the only way you actually get back to that depth of, of having leaders like that is you start to move in that direction. Is The church needs to be like that. 
the church is, the church needs to have leaders that it appoints in that way. When the church appoints elders, there's times where the church goes out to find someone who's not known right, to pastors. bring in and rule over them. I mean, and there's this there's just this completely wrong view. They don't want someone that they know. They don't they don't want someone who's been with them and who knows them. They they keep you know going out and bringing in this hopeful thing and well I hope he can hold us together and to get back to that point we actually have to change how we how we think about ourselves and I mean even in the electoral college the way it was originally planned to work which isn't it never worked this way but the way it was originally planned to work is what you do is you pick somebody from your your congressional district that you know and then he goes and gets to know all the potential candidates. And then he chooses the one that would be best so that you would be picking people that were you were picking people that you knew so that they could pick people they knew. And that's how you'd come to the president. That's how the original electoral college, it was not supposed to be, well, if you vote for Joe, he's going to vote for for Donald. Right. It was you vote for Joe because, you know, Joe and you trust what Joe will do. And it was a position where then Joe figures out who would be the best president. It was representative government all the way. Right. Up. It was representative, but it was you also were representative this, electors, effectively, that you were voting for. And the, so it's this idea of you elect known men who then know men to elect. Right. As opposed to going, how much does anybody really know about President Biden, about President Trump? We know very little because the media can hide so much and does hide so much how much stuff has come after the election right. about President Biden. And so, you know, and again, the best way to do this is get to know your local guys. It doesn't have to be the highest levels. Most of the higher level people in government come from the lower levels. So get to know the lower level people because that's how you get to know the higher level because then they move up. And like we said, during the coronavirus, local people had a much greater impact on your day-to-day life than, than anyone else had did. And that's almost always true in terms of, you know, when you think of the mayor of your city who has control over the police, has control over the fire department, has control over the schools, has control over or some control over the school, has control over the the trash pickup. Right. These things that like snow removal, <laughs> these things that people, you know, the local politicians affect you more. But yet we just want to focus on Washington and then the local politicians can do whatever they want. It's very damaging. When we look at this idea of known men. One of the things that has caused huge shifts in this country were because presidents ran on the platform that they would bring in unknown people, that nobody knew what their character was like, nobody knew what their behavior was right, right, right. This is FDR's whiz kids who rebuilt the country and changed it. I mean, FDR ran on a pretty fascist position when he ran the first time. And then he brings in all these whiz kids to basically make the United States fascist. Say more about the whiz kids. I mean, what, this was these were college – I mean <laughs> – they were mostly academics, young academics that he brought in that nobody knew what they were going, were the, were the technical experts. This was an idea that Hoover had. Hoover had the idea that, that what you want is technocrats. You don't want people that are actually known and politicians. What you want to do is put in all the positions of power. You want to put technocrats because they'll make the right decision. It was bringing engineering into the government. And FDR, in a lot of ways, just followed what Hoover was doing. And so the whiz kids was his attempt to do that, to restructure everything so that the wisest people would be in government so that they could control everything in the government. And you basically brought in people who, like I said, they weren't known, and they actually hadn't necessarily done anything really in the world. They'd just done things academically. They just had ideas. And then you have JFK, and he has Camelot. Camelot's exactly the same thing. He basically does the same thing that FDR does, where he gets a lot of academics in to say, we'll run it using this academic model. 
as opposed to things that really work. What we're going to do is we're going to get the brilliant people that, that have all the ideas and we'll bring them in, whether they've actually done anything useful or not or helped anybody, that doesn't matter. They have brilliant ideas, so we'll bring them in. And there's really shifts in the country in terms of socialism, in terms of the view of society and great society and stuff that Johnson brings in. These are all come from this idea that you pick these people that are completely unknown, but they have brilliant ideas. And, you know, just because someone's name is famous doesn't necessarily mean they're a known man. Like after World War II, you know, Dwight D. Eisenhower, one of the most famous people in the country, but no one had any idea what his politics were. The Democrats and the Republicans were both trying to get him to be their nominee. And they didn't know what his politics were. They just thought, well, maybe we can get him to sign on with us and we can win an election and rule the country. And I do think that they were both looking at him and saying he's able to control a large staff. He's, and so that he was able in a certain sense, but they didn't care what his positions were. They just said, this is a guy who's, who the country will look at as competent. But yeah, Truman was very upset when he ran as a Republican. And this is, we did an episode on why conservatism should die. But I mean, conservatism just tries to slow down the rate of change in a sense. It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't have as a foundational principle that leaders should be known men. I mean, it has, in a sense, one of the ways you slow down change is by having established people kind of continue in positions. But it doesn't, but in the end, ideologically, it doesn't teach you the biblical reasons for why these things should be. And so again, this is just another shortcoming kind of, of of conservatism is that it has things that sort of have an effect that are useful, but it's never going to lead in a direction where you actually promote those things that are biblical. It's just going to slow down decay. The church likes to complain about the leaders that we have in this country, from the, the local mayor to the president of the United States. But yet how often does it say, what should we do to get the leaders that God would have us to have, the ones that we, that the church should desire to have? And it really starts with the repentance of the church. When you go to cast your ballot and you think, I'll vote for the lesser of two evils, just remember, as a Christian, you have just voted for evil for your neighbor. Think about that. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.